momentarily. And so anyway, well, hey, let, let's do this. We're, we're, I'm going to wrap up part four of a series called Change. I can't wait to get after it. But if you could just bow your heads with me and let's pray as we begin today. Jesus, we invite you into this place, God. Be in our midst, God. We pray that you would speak to us today. It would challenge us today, God. From the inside out, let us be Change, God. Let us walk out of this place different than the way we walked in today, Lord. That is our prayer in the mighty name of Jesus. And we all said, amen. amen. If you have your Bible, go to John chapter 3 with me. I want to jump right into an incredibly old school, familiar story. As a matter of fact, everybody do this with me. Are, are y'all a talking church? Do y'all talk or amen or say things or whatever? I, I grew up Southern Baptist and they were real quiet. And then I went to like a Pentecostal Bible college and they didn't shut up. And so I'm, I'm you can do anything with me and I'm good. And so, uh, you can amen and preach white boy, or if you, if you are Pentecostal, there's a hanky in your pocket, and uh, whatever works for you. But I do want you to talk every once in a while with me. So if I say, say this, you know, give me your best, uh, you know, Spartan, you know, is it Jess, right? And Wolverine? Lions. Let's just go Lions. Terrible. Right? Anyway. Uh, and so anyway, uh, everybody say born again. There's a story that we're going to get into where Jesus kind of brings up this idea of being born again. Now, let me tell you again, growing up in the South, in South Carolina, there's more Baptists than Christians. There's churches on every corner, uh, churches sharing parking lots. There's churches everywhere. And so I grew up in, a, in an area, in a culture where like you're, you're almost over-churched. And so the term born again is something that's thrown around a lot. And you, you hear this almost kind of redneck voice, brother, are you born again? And you got, you got that in your head. So you grew up with that. And then I was talking to my wife about it, who grew up mostly unchurched. And, and she said that the first time she ever heard the term born again, it was like confusing. And it, it was like, I don't even know what that means. And so we've got this term born again. And I want to look at it today and hopefully shed some new light on a really, really old school term. So one more time, everybody say born again. I almost wish I could go back and hear that phrase for the very first time. I wish I could be this guy, sit down with Jesus and have Jesus say, hey, look, you need to experience this idea called born again. Because just to think about it, can, can you imagine hearing that phrase as if you had no emotional or historical context or past connection to it. What would that mean to you? And this is what we'll look at today in John chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, read along with me. Verse number 1 says this. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, uh, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are, and here's that phrase, born again. How, and this is the, the response, he was clearly confused. How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their, into their mother's womb to be born. And so Jesus, now and here's, here's what you need to know. We throw around the term born again a lot, but Jesus only uses the term one time in all of the Gospels, to one specific man in one specific context. And he's talking to a guy named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Everybody say Pharisee. Pharisee. Now, Pharisees, if you read the Bible, the Pharisees are kind of like the Klingons of the New Testament. They're always the bad guys, and they're awful. And as a matter of fact, Jesus loves the little children, and he prays for the sick, and he does whatever. But man, when you get a group of Pharisees around, he will just rip them. I mean, he absolutely tears into them. He calls them a bunch of bad names and just off. And, and there's a reason behind that. But here's what you need to know. Not all Pharisees were bad, but there was definitely a group of corrupt 
religious leaders in his day, and that's what made Jesus so upset, and that's what he kind of railed against. But by and large, if you were really historically compare Jesus to any of the social groups of his day, he would most be compared to a Pharisee. Pharisee just means separated one. And basically, these were the people who were incredibly religiously pious. I mean, these are the people that fasted twice a week. These are the people that literally, they would tithe off of their spice garden. They would have a little garden out back, spices growing. My wife does this. Does anybody do their little garden? Yeah, you tithe, have you tithed off your garden? And so um, these guys, tithe, if they got anything, a gift from a non-Jewish person, they would tithe off of it because they realized that that gift had come from a non-tithing person. These are the people that, that really studied the Torah and studied the, the, the first five books of the Bible. These are kids that would have grown up memorizing the scripture. These are people that were just absolutely so religious. Now, this is the type of person that Jesus is talking to. Remember, in, in the next chapter, Jesus talks to a woman who was a Samaritan and who had been married five times. And this is the beauty of Jesus, is that Jesus will take the most dysfunctional, weird, jacked up person and love them, which is good for most of us in this room. But he also takes the people who are incredibly affluent and successful and well off. And he says, you need a change too. So, so the, the, the woman that had been married five times and the guy who was the most religiously, and this guy wasn't just religious, this guy had made it all the way, it says that he's a part of the ruling council, this is a, this is a term they would have used, he was a part of the Sanhedrin, which was basically um, their, their, is their judicial, judicial system, this is like all the judges that would have ruled over any dispute, any problems inside of the area, and so he was a part of that, this guy was very well to do, but he comes to Jesus at night, because Jesus has already made a stir and a mess of things, and is already kind of tilting the religious order. So he comes to Jesus at night and said, I need to find out really what's going on and who you are and where you're from. I need to know more. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Now, because these people were so religious and because I told you they studied the Torah and they studied the scripture so well, they knew something. They had discovered that there was a pattern in the Old Testament, and this is why born again is going to make so much more sense today. The pattern that they had discovered as they read the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, over and over and over again, is that there was this Hebrew axiom, if you will, and this is the way it goes, is that they noticed that firstborns always received justice in life and secondborns always received mercy. Can we say that today? This is where I need you to buy it. So firstborns get what? Justice. Justice. Secondborns get? Mercy. One more time. Firstborns get? Justice. And secondborns get? And they realized that there was this struggle even in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew Bible, this, this balance between justice and mercy. One rabbi was quoted as saying that if the world was justice only, then the world would cease to exist because God would just have to annihilate everybody. But if the, the world was only mercy, the sin would, would ramp it. We'd all kill each, each other. But th so there has to be this perfect balance so that the world can exist. And it's this balance between justice and mercy. And so what they would notice is that there was this axiom. Firstborns, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Do you remember the story of Noah? It was a, you know, it's a, we got our children's rooms painted with boats and animals and all that. And the, the real story is that God killed everybody. And so um, it's a beautiful children's story. And... and <laughs> But, but if you remember, they get on the boat. Remember, it's Noah. He brings on his, his, his family. He has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Aren't you glad that you didn't get named Ham or, you know, something where, especially if you're, you know, just big-boned or whatever. That'd be bad. And so um, you don't want to carry that. You'll get picked on a lot in school if your name is Ham. And so anyway, this is the three kids. So after they get off the boat, they begin to, you know, have life again. And when they're off the boat, the Bible says that Noah builds a vineyard. Now, what comes from a vineyard? 
wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the Bible says that Noah made a vineyard that he drank too much wine. What happens when you drink too much wine? You get drunk. What happens when you get drunk? You do stupid things. Who said pass out? How did you know that? Anyway, <laughs> there's prayer after service today. Anyway, um, so, so basically Noah gets so slammed. Is there kids in this room? Just cover your ears. He gets so slammed that he gets um, naked. And so, because what do you do when you're drunk? You do stupid things. And so anyway, he, he gets passed out, bucket naked. And, and in this suing, um, it says that, that, that Ham comes in and finds, now how would you feel if you found your dad like that? It'd be a little odd. And uh, it might scar you a little bit as a son to find your dad like that. And so he finds his dad like that. And then he just goes and tells everybody. Well, the other two brothers, and it tells the story very specifically, it tells them that they actually walk backwards with a blanket so that they can cover their father's nakedness without ever looking at him. Well, eventually dad comes too, and when he finds out what happens, he is furious because his son Ham had totally dishonored him by exposing his sin and nakedness and on and on and on. And so Noah curses him which is almost like a, 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 a spiritual whooping. You know, it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to curse you. But here's the problem. The curse can't go to Ham. So, well, why can't? Because firstborns get what? Secondborns get? Okay, now, this is what you need to know. A firstborn is obviously a firstborn child. A secondborn is anybody that's born second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, whatever, however many kids you got, right? So, so was Ham a firstborn? No, so he can't accept the curse. So who does the curse go to? Canaan. His son, his firstborn son. Why? Because firstborns get justice. Secondborns get mercy. As a matter of fact, when you just keep reading the Bible and you read down each story, each one progresses. Remember the story of Joseph. The, the, the story of Joseph is this. His brothers don't like him because Joseph is a little bit arrogant. He calls a big family meeting and tells everybody in the meeting of this great dream that God gave him. And in the dream, he's standing and they're all bowing. How many know that doesn't go over well with family dinner? That's not the way you're going to make friends and influence people either. And so anyway, that's what Joseph does. He's out of line because the guy that would have called the family meeting would have not been Joseph, who was the 12th born. It would have been basically Reuben, who was the firstborn. He, was, he would have been in charge of family affairs. And so Joseph has this meeting. Well, the brothers don't like him, and so they conspire to kill him. What they do is they dig a big ditch or they find a ditch and they throw him in it and then they go have lunch while during lunch they determine and decide and get creative on how they're going to kill their brother. Your family's not that bad now, are they? So like, <laughs> you thought your family was bad, they're not that bad. And so uh, now, but during lunch, during sandwich time, Reuben speaks up and says, guys, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him off into slavery. Why would Reuben say that? Because Reuben was the firstborn, and he knew that if this ever got found out, that he would be the one held responsible for what was going on. Because firstborns receive what? And secondborns get? So again, this, this whole progression keeps going down. Think about the, in the story of Exodus, when God brings the plagues against Egypt. He brings all these plagues to try to get to Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh won't budge. He's stubborn. He's arrogant. And finally, the tenth and final plague is the what? It is the death of the firstborn. When you look at the Levitical law, there was this law that they had that if you were uh, basically a shepherd, that whenever you had a flock come in, that you would have to kill the firstborn. And it said that the firstborn would redeem the entire flock. Why? Because firstborns get what? Secondborns get 
Again, you, you, when you read the whole family, as a matter of fact, how many of y'all come from like a charismatic background of some kind? Yeah, yeah. In charismatic churches, we, we get excited about certain things and we, we, sometimes we shouldn't. Um, you ever heard of like a Pentecostal charismatic guy be like, you know what, brother? God's going to give you a double portion. Yeah, yeah. You don't want that. And here's why. Um, so if any guy ever does that, he'd be like, no, you take that back. Um, the, the reason why they gave a double portion, they gave the double portion to the firstborn son. And the reason why they would do that is because they had a, a basically a system, a family system in which the firstborn was in charge of handling all the family disputes. And so the firstborn son, like let's say like brothers four or five or whatever, committed a crime and then ran off, who would have to pay the penalty for it? Firstborn son. Here's another one. They had this thing called the kinsman redeemer, which basically said, and this was to protect the family. This was an idea of protecting women who would have no way of taking care of themselves. If a second, third, or fifthborn son had a wife, and then let's say he died, the firstborn son would have to assume a responsibility for the wife and the children. And, and think about this. They didn't have one wife back then. They had like two or three or depending on how much money you had. Can you imagine if your brothers... Now, real quick, how many of you are firstborns in here? You're firstborn in your family? I'm so sorry. We should... Let's just pray right now. Jesus. Anyway, how many of you are secondborns? Raise your hand. Y'all are doing good today. You feel better, aren't you? Anyway, think about this. Let's say all your brothers go out in, in like a hunting expedition and they all die. But the firstborn stayed at home. You would have to inherit. Let's say you had four or five wives. That's three wives on average. That's 15 wives, not including them ugly little kids you got to take care of now. <laughs> I got one wife. That's more than I can handle. 15 wives. So the double portion wasn't so you could buy a Corvette. The double portion was going to Walmart so you could buy some diapers. It was, it was going so you could feed all of your brother's family. Anyway, you get the point. You don't want the double portion. When you read the genealogy of Jesus, think about the genealogy of Jesus. They're all secondborns. Isaac, secondborn. Who was his older brother? Ishmael. Firstborns receive justice. Secondborns get mercy. Isaac got mercy. He was a secondborn son. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, they both had their mess-ups, didn't they? And, but Esau is considered the accursed one, and Jacob is the one that carries on the lineage of Jesus because firstborn's got justice and secondborn's got mercy. When you think about Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. Who was the one that, again, it goes back down to Joseph and the whole Reuben story. Even down to like David. David was one that wasn't even invited to the family meeting when they were going to anoint a new king because David was at the bottom of the pecking order. He was a second-born son. Now, David commits one of the most gravest sins of his life when he has this incredible affair with Bathsheba. He murders off the husband, has an affair with Bathsheba. She's pregnant. They have a first-born son. What happens to the first-born son? He dies. They have a second-born son. They name him Solomon. He's the greatest and the wisest king that ever lived. Firstborns get... Are you all with me? Are y'all still alive? Am I messing with you? So let's get, come back with that, that Spartan gusto. Everybody say, firstborns get, secondborns get. Okay, this, the, here's why this is so important. I told you that Pharisees were, were very pious people. They only made up about 2% of the population, but they were, they were all firstborn children. So Jesus shows up, and Nicodemus says, I need to figure out the kingdom of God and what you're up to. And he says, you know what you need? You need to be born again. It's the only time Jesus ever says that phrase. And the reason why is because Jesus is trying to basically change Nicodemus's position in life. Again, when you, when you think about it, let's keep reading the story. Verse 5, John chapter 3, truly I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. 
flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the spirit. And Nicodemus asked the question, how can this be? Remember this, when Nicodemus was trying to figure this out, he didn't kick back. He was actually like, tell me more. How are we going to work this out? Because I can't jump back in my mother's womb. I don't know how this is going to happen, but I'm, I'm buying into what you're saying. Because I'm a firstborn child, and I've recognized that all of my life that there's been justice coming my way. And I, I really like looking at my younger siblings and thinking, it'd be nice <laughs> to be secondborn. Listen, here's the story we'll, we'll, we'll kind of land on for the, for the next couple minutes here. We're talking about this firstborn justice, secondborn mercy. Listen to this story. This is a beautiful picture here. Genesis 38, there's a story of a woman named Tamar. The story's fascinating, but just, just binded this little, little tiny snippet of it. It says, it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Do you see why though? Because they wanted to know who was the firstborn. It was a big deal. Because, I mean, even with twins, one of them was coming out first. And so that's why they would do this. This one came out first. Then it happened, as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she's like, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Meaning like, sorry, you're the firstborn now. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zara. So I want you to think about this picture here, this beautiful picture of, of a brother starting to come out, but then the other one pulling him back in saying, no, 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 you don't, you don't want to go out first. Let me do this. Let me take your place. You ever read Corinthians and Romans, and it has this interesting dynamic where it talks about Adam as the first Adam and Jesus as the second Adam, and you have all these things, and you start seeing how we're all what? We're all from the seed of the line of Adam, but he was the first Adam. And then, but then you have these interesting scriptures like this, like listen to this, Romans 8, 29. For God, who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Colossians 1, 15. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus used the phrase born again one time to one man in one particular context. And it was because I was, was Jesus saying, I want you to change your position in life because all of your life, you've been a position of justice, a position of judgment, a position where you were gonna get yours. But I want to take your place. I want you to be born again so that you can come out second, third, fourth, fifth, what, I, we don't even care. And I want you to allow me to take your place and to become the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. I want you to allow me to become the firstborn over all creation. Amen. Jesus is your firstborn Amen. so that you, he took justice so that you could receive mercy. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. How am I doing on time? I have no idea. Okay, just, I'll just keep going. Just leave if you don't like it. Um, here's, here's the deal. I had this this kind of moment, you know, I've been in Bible college and ministry since I was 19, 20 years old, and, 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 but, but a few years ago, some things started to dawn on me, and I started to read the Bible in a different way, and, 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 and I started to see things that I hadn't seen before, and, and let me tell you what, what it really rooted in. I believe from the beginning of my relationship with God that my relationship with God, for the most part, was like very personal, 
It was very personal between me and God. And so what I believed is, is that I needed to pray. I needed to go to church. I needed to worship. I needed to read my Bible. And what mattered most was my personal relationship with God. And that was what was so important to me. And I had missed something, I think. Because all of a sudden, like, you ever, you ever feel like sometimes you just don't get it? You remember when you were a kid and you were sitting at the table and you were so young and your parents would spell? You know, you'd be sitting there, and and they would say, "Mm mm-hmm, I think somebody needs to go to B-E-D. And you're like, man, I ain't something right about it. I don't even know what B-E-D is, but it can't be good. Because you just, it's just like something is beyond your ability to comprehend or understand. And it just kind of goes over your head. And for years, I think I lived this way. Because I believe my relationship with God was primarily personal. And that what mattered most, now let me ask you a question. Does worship and prayer and reading the Bible, are those all good things? Of course they are. But I discovered that there might be something that actually matters more to God than all of those personal things. And it was this idea that came out of, Todd, you've been given a brand new position of mercy. What matters most now is that you live in that mercy. That you become a dealer of mercy. That you become a person of mercy. That mercy is all around your life and in everything that you do and in all that you are. What, what, here's the, the, the big walk away. What I realized was is how I treated people was so much more important than I had ever realized. And when I began to read the Bible, all of a sudden it was everywhere. Like when you go back and read the Ten Commandments, you ever thought about like, like God gives you ten. Like that's got to be big, right? There's only ten Every one of them has got to be really important because there's only 10. But when you read them, like God, God's like, okay, look, don't have other gods. Worship me only. Okay, once we get beyond that, really here's what matters most. I, it matters how you treat other people. So like when it comes to your parents, I want you to honor your parents. Like treat them well. Like honor them. Like, like even the rest of them, when it says something like, thou shalt not bear false witness, what he's saying is this. I want you to honor people's reputation. You don't lie about people. Like when he says don't steal, he's saying I want you to honor people's possessions. That's their stuff. That's not yours. You, you honor that. Like when he says something like don't commit adultery, he's saying I want you to honor their marriage. Like, like how you treat, like once you get beyond like God is God and love him and follow him, the most important thing, the next six were like love and honor people. Like Micah comes along and, and, and he reduces it. Like Moses jumped it down to 10, right? Because there's like 600 laws in the Old Testament, by the way. Moses is like, there's 10 really, really important ones, and most of them deal with how you treat other people. But then, then Micah comes along. Look, look at what Micah says. Micah says this. He says, I lost my place. These aren't, these aren't my, my notes aren't normally like this. Here he goes. He, 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 listen to what Micah says. Micah says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? So like two out of three, and the first two out of three are directly related to how you treat other people. People, Jesus comes along, he's like, three, I'll trim it down to one. Because they said, what's the most important commandment in all of Scripture? And he won't even give them one. He basically says this, it's to love God with all your whole soul, mind, and strength. But it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And notice he was asked for one, because he gave, but he gave him two. It's because the two are intertwined so tightly that you cannot separate them. Because you cannot love God without loving what God loves. You can't separate that. So like it is impossible for you to have a personal relationship with God whereby you say you love God, but then you mistreat other people. This is why John said it like this. And he was really, it was almost kind of mean about it. He's like, if you say you love God, but you don't know how to treat your brothers and sisters, you're a liar and darkness is in your heart. And you're like, oh. And so like, then you see all these pictures that Jesus is painting about like, hey, at the end of time, we're all going to get together and God's going to separate like goat people from sheep people. And you're like, I don't want to be a goat. And so, 
And he goes on to describe how he separates them. And how he separated them was not based on their, their religious piousness or any of those things. He goes, the difference was this. The righteous were people who when they saw people who were hungry, they fed them. And when they were in need, they helped them. And they were thirsty, they gave them something. Like that, that, when you did it to them, you did it to me because you cannot separate. And so here's my point. You are the people of mercy. This is what you should be living in and walking in. Why? Because God has changed your position. You don't, you're not the firstborn anymore. You're in. You've, you've been put into a brand, in Christ, you've been given a brand new position of mercy. And in light of that, I want you to live out that mercy. And, and, and it's everywhere. It's all throughout scripture. Think about this. There's two cities in the Old Testament. One of them uh, th that's called the Sodom and Gomorrah. And the other one's the Tower of Babel, the city of Babel. Notice both of them like God does away with both of them. You ever think about the difference why? Sodom and Gomorrah, the way they treated other people was so wicked and so heinous that he destroys them. The Tower of Babel, actually, they got, they got along. They loved each other. They were unified. They were just idolatrous. He doesn't destroy them. Just go your way. Stop doing that. What was the difference in how you treat other people? I'll, 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 I don't, I'll start wrapping up here. There, there's a, an experience that I had where this became even more clear to me. And I, I'm a parent of three kids. Uh, they're 10, no, they're 11, 8, and 5. And... I, I realized something one day. I had a moment where I was watching my children and what they did profoundly impacted me. Now, how many of you know it's super awesome when your kids tell you that they love you? Isn't that awesome? Like, that's so awesome. Like, like my little daughter will come up and she has this thing where like she'll throw a kiss and then you got to catch it and put it in your heart. And, 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 and then she said to me that she's just, Daddy, I love you more than kisses. And it's just, just so sweet and she's so wonderful. And, but, but here's the thing. It's awesome when your kids tell you that they love you, isn't it? It's just, it's just amazing. But... The other day I'm watching him and I see the brother say to the sister, I love you. And I'm like, oh my God. And it, it so hit me differently. Like, I love it when they say I love me, you know, I'm down for that. What became more powerful is when I saw the brother say to the sister, I love you. And I thought, that's even better. Because if you love your sister... I, I'm not even worried about you loving me. I mean, just, that's easy. I want you to know that you have been given a change of position in life. You, you, you don't have to sit underneath judgment and justice anymore. He's taken your place. He took it all. He became the firstborn so that you might receive mercy. But now he's invited you into this relationship so that you might become a people of mercy. Here, real quick, seven thoughts on, on mercy that I need you to like flesh this out with. Are you ready? I promise, quick thoughts. Uh, no, number one is, is this is all for the note takers. Like, I know you uh, different wired minds and brains and whatever. So all you people that had pad and pen and all that. So this is your spot in the sermon right here. No, number, number one is this. As a people of mercy, revenge is off the table. Revenge is off the table. Like what they, because it's so nice to like plot and plan what you will do to them because of what they did to you. And you get creative. You're, you're your most creative moments when you're evil, aren't you? And so you're like, man, I'm going to do this. I'm telling you, the Bible says vengeance is the Lord's. A people of mercy, now, nah, revenge is off the table. I'll let God work that out. I don't even care. Number two is this, is forgiveness is a quick option. Forgiveness should be a quick option. It'd be something like immediately in our heart, it springs. As soon as they do it, it's like, okay, well, how am I going to forgive them? How am I going to work that out? I need to let that go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to free them of that debt. They don't owe me anymore. I'm going to let them go. Because forgiveness should be in our heart as a people of mercy. Because here's the deal. So many times in our life, we, we think about how we want to treat other people or how we 
look at other people. And, and this is what we do. Normally, when other people make a mistake, we think, man, I really want God to get them. Where is it that you want justice for someone else and mercy for yourself? Because you've never once prayed, God, you know what? You just need to get me. You've never prayed that prayer in your life. Where is it in your life that you need, you, you need to ask yourself, where, where have I been wanting justice for someone else? Is it that neighbor that didn't pay for his side of the fence? I mean, what was it? What, where did you want justice for someone else, but you wanted mercy for yourself? Number three is this, is you will judge mercifully. You will judge mercifully. Here, here's what judging mercifully means. Um, judging mercifully, in essence, means that I will give them the benefit of the doubt until I have no other explanation or reason to. That, that I will always give them the benefit of the doubt, make them an excuse as to why they were late, why they fell through, why they didn't do what they said. I, I'll just, I will give them every possible out, because that's how you want to be judged anyway, right? Like you, Because this is what you do when you come to God. You come to God and you're like, but Lord, you didn't understand who my parents were and you didn't know who I was married to and you, did, you didn't know. And so that's the way you, you, you want God to take in every factor of your life when he judges you. You know what I mean? And then be really, really merciful. But then we don't treat other people that way. We want God to judge us by our intentions, but yet we want to judge other people by our actions. And I'm telling you, as a people of mercy, we shouldn't do that. We should judge mercifully. Number four is this, we will be slow to get angry. We will be slow to get angry. Number five is this, gossip is never an option. Like to talk about other people. Like think about this, like there was this rabbi, his name was Halil, he lived one generation before Jesus and, and he was asked the question, uh, it's like a story in the Talmud and, and a guy comes to Halil and says, I will convert to Judaism if you can teach me the whole law while I stand here on one leg. That's <laughs> kind of dumb, but Halil says to him, that's fine, that's easy, just, just stand there, just take, take a moment here. Whatever is hateful to you, do not do to another. The rest is commentary. Jesus comes along 30 years later and inverts it, makes it more challenging. Because Halil gave the negative version of it, meaning whatever you don't want somebody to do to you. Like, like, I don't want people to punch me in the face. So I don't punch people in the face. But I'm small and I'd get beat up anyway. So that's the, the negative. Jesus inverts it and does the opposite. He goes, actually, however you would want other people to treat you, that's how I want you to treat other people. Like, how do you want people to talk about you? Man, I want people to come up and encourage me and celebrate me. And man, I'm all about that. So then that's the way I want you to be towards others. So like, I would never want people to throw me under the bus and talk bad about me. And, and, and I would never want that. Why? And, and it's not that we just then refuse to gossip. Then it's to, to, to go so much deeper into the realm of mercy. Say, I'm going to take other people and so elevate them and so lift them up and so celebrate them. Why? Because I'm a person. I'm a child of mercy. I'm second born. Number whatever. Acts of compassion are automatic. Acts of compassion are automatic. We're constantly looking for people who are in need where we can do something in the name of Jesus. Just do something in the name of kindness. To do something in the name of mercy. To do something. To find them and just bless them. To do it in secret. To, to, to do it however you can. But anytime somebody is ever in need to say, oh, this is going to be, you should be licking your chops at the opportunity to do something nice and something kind and generous towards another human being. And then lastly is this, we will err on the side of mercy. In any dispute, in any argument, in any, any dilemma, in any conflict, whatever it is, if you've got to go down this road or that road and you're trying to determine and you say, God, what is your will? And we get a, listen, I want you, if you're going to make a mistake, I don't want you to make a mistake on being too harsh, too critical, too quick to be angry, too quick to judge harshly. If you're going to make a mistake, I want you to make a mistake by being too kind, too generous, and too merciful. I'll show you why. Last scripture and we're done. James chapter 2, verse 12. So speak 
in light of everything we talked about, listen to these words carefully. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Remember, you're being judged by, by grace now, right? Because you're second born. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. He's saying, look, if you live a life where you don't give mercy, fine. But you're going to be judged without mercy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get to heaven, I want the absolute most merciful approach that I can get to my being judged. I, that's just me. For mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen to these words. For judgment is without mercy, the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Can, can we say that? Everybody say mercy. mercy triumphs over judgment. Like what an incredible thought. Let us be the people of mercy. I had, I had an instance when I was a little kid. I was a terrible little child, by the way. I think my parents like wanted to like give me up to adoption like when I was well of age, you know, that kind of a thing. We're like, Ugh. so it was so bad. I don't even know why they tell me these stories. They're like, yeah, you were kind of an accident. And, 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 and they told me this when I was an adult. They were like, yeah, whenever your, your father and I, this is my, my sweet loving mother, um, who she really is. I'm not sure why she told me this story. But she goes, whenever your father and I were in any destination or location and we had separate cars, your father and I would argue over who got your brother. I was just, all that to set the stage for this story. I was, I was a mischievous little kid and, and did lots of bad things. And I won't get into the details beyond that. I was just a bad kid. And I, how many know, like, you can get on a run of really bad ones? You got kids like that. You're like, yeah, man, just one more thing. I'm going to kill you. And so, you know, because you can build. And I was on a hot streak. And I was building up the level of whooping that I got whoopings. I didn't get spankings. Um, and, 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 man, I did something else wrong again. And my brother knew when I had been dialing it up and been on a hot streak of bad ideas. And, and, and there was one night I was going to get a whooping. And my brother, he only did this once. My brother actually lied and said, actually, Dad, Todd didn't do that. That was me. And in that moment, I was so sad and so happy. <laughs> I was sad because my brother was going to get a spanking. But it wasn't going to be that bad because he had been really good lately. You know, because, you know, you know, when it's your first offense, it's not that, you know. And, but for me, all hell would be unbroken on my booty. And so, and I had that moment, and, it's, and it stuck with me my whole life. And when I learned this and the story of Perez and, and the story of Zara and, and the story of being born again, it, 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 all of a sudden it flashed back to me. There was this moment where my brother stepped in. And he said, I know I didn't do it, but I'll take your place. And it's this beautiful picture of grace. It's this beautiful picture of mercy. It's, it's the older brother saying, I will take justice so that you can receive mercy. I want you to know you've been changed. From the inside out, God, and some of you, you've been changed and you didn't even know it. You, you were changed and nothing magical felt like it happened on the outside. You didn't even get a goosebump. And, but, but you were changed. Your position in Jesus changed. And you went from being a a child of justice and judgment. And he took your place so that you could be a child of mercy. Now go and live in that mercy. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we thank you, first and foremost, God, that, that we don't stand in, in, in a place of judgment. We don't stand underneath the, the judgment of having to own up for all we did, God. You took all of our sins on the cross. You took our place. You did for us what we could not do for ourselves. You paid a price that you did not owe, but you did it because you loved us. You took my place so that I could receive 
mercy. And God, I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful. God, help me to never take that for granted. And God, help me to step into this new place of mercy and reflect mercy and give mercy and share mercy and become a dealer of mercy. God, in every relationship I have, God, help me to be patient. God, help me to be kind. Help me to be generous. God, help me to be quick to forgive and slow to become angry and quick to give away mercy because of the mercy you have given me. God, that is my prayer today in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Can we